This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome back to the Francis Effect Podcast. We are kicking off Season 14 here at the beginning of 2024. My name is David Dalt. I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith, and I'm an assistant professor of Christian spirituality at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago, currently on sabbatical, finishing books and starting new ones. I'm so excited about that. I'm here with my two friends, Heidi Schlumpf and Father Dan Haran. Heidi is senior correspondent at National Catholic Reporter, a publication that connects Catholics to church, faith, and the common good with independent news, analysis, and spiritual reflection. Father Dan is professor of philosophy, religious studies, and theology, and director of the Center for the Study of Spirituality at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. He is also affiliated professor of spirituality at the Oblate School of Theology in San Antonio, Texas. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss news and events through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. Father Dan and Heidi, welcome to you both. Welcome back from our winter break. Heidi, how have you been? Well, like most of you, a little bit chilled because it's so cold here in Chicago that the Chicago public school system even canceled school today, which is pretty rare. So I think we've got the negative actual temperatures and double-digit negative wind chills. I know it's chilly where you guys are, too. So so I have the whole family home with me today while I'm recording, and hopefully we won't have any interruptions. But looking forward to seeing you two again. I took a good two weeks off over the break, which was great. It was a good time to be with family, celebrate Christmas, celebrate Epiphany. Also, I had a pretty major story run while I was on vacation, so I had been working for a couple weeks, even months, on a deep dive into Leonard Leo, the legal activist, and his connection to Catholic organizations. So if you missed that over the break, maybe we can put it in the show notes. What about you guys? What have you been up to? I've missed hanging out with you. Well, it's been chilly here as well. So snowy and cold in South Bend, not that far from Chicago, but we're on the other side of the lake. So we get a little bit more snow, I think, than you guys do. So we're thawing out. We're recording on the first day of the new academic semester, and so that's both exciting and always demanding, syllabi finalizing and emails with students and new classrooms and the usual. The break for me was mixed. It was, as Charles Dickens might say, the best of times and the worst of times. The best was certainly spending time with family, with friends. I got to see our mutual friend here, David Dalt, and another friend of ours who will be a guest on this episode of the podcast, Steve Millies. 
in person at the end of December. So that was always nice. It's always nice to connect in real time. But around the same time, too, there was some news here at St. Mary's College that has been covered in NCR and other outlets about the Board of Trustees and the administration and the Sisters of the Holy Cross reversing their decision to be a inclusive Catholic women's college. So there are eight Catholic women's colleges in the country. Seven of the eight have had trans and non-binary inclusive admissions policies. And St. Mary's here was last to the game. And the board voted last summer to update that policy. Long story short, by the middle of the semester last fall, some students had reached out to other people externally, and there was a lot of pushback and consternation and concern. Part of it had to do with the way that it was being framed by bad faith actors. But the ultimate result was that the Sisters of the Holy Cross, the administration, and the Board of Trustees felt under pressure to reverse their decision. So that has caused a lot of turmoil, continues to cause turmoil. The students are very upset. The faculty and staff are very upset. It's not clear exactly what the implications of this are going to be, but it, I share that because that's something that's weighing very heavily on me and many of my colleagues and our students. So ask for prayers and support for us here on this campus as we navigate being the only Catholic women's college to have an exclusion policy like that. David, I hope you've had better news and experience given your sabbatical <laughs> right now. Well, first of all, it was great to see you on our trip down to South Bend and Notre Dame and just to hang out that day. Like you, I am keeping St. Mary's in prayer around this situation, and I'm sorry to hear that this is what's happening, but there are forces in the Catholic Church that want people to be in cages, whether spiritual or mental. And so part of what we do is we hope to really talk about the gospel of liberation, where Jesus pulled down that scroll from Isaiah and talked about setting the captives free. I had a good Christmas break, although kind of what happens to me for the last several years is that we get to the end of a semester and I basically physically collapse. And sometimes things happen like I, I, get, I get sick or some other sort of health problem rears its head. I had a minor, it's not serious, a minor medical issue. It was painful, but it's, there's nothing bad and I'm recovering from it. It's all good. But that threw a monkey wrench into things for a couple of weeks. But we have family that is here in the Chicago area, actually right here in our neighborhood. And so we were very blessed to be able to be just with family throughout the holiday season, spent a nice New Year's going to bed at nine o'clock. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, I am finishing the Accessorized Bible, getting ready to send that to my editor. I'm finishing another book called The Covert Magisterium. I'm starting a book on queer theology, and I'm proposing a couple of other projects and finishing some chapters and uh, journal papers that are all happening during this sabbatical. So I have a really nice dance card ahead of me for the next several months. I'm excited about it now that I'm getting more energy to actually spend some hours with my butt in the chair. I'm especially excited by that. As people who, who care very deeply about the church, sometimes when you try and take a long-distance view of what things like synodality or documents like fiducia supplicans might mean for the church, it can both be energizing, but it can also be exhausting. And so I've been doing that dance of energy and exhaustion for the last several weeks. And for listeners out there who have similar dances in their own lives, I just encourage you, when you feel like you need to lay down, please go lay down. When you feel like you need to take a walk, give yourself permission to take a walk. When you feel like you are just spent, don't beat yourself up. 
go do laundry or something else that just helps to move the needle along. And I'm preaching to myself here, don't beat yourself up for what you're not doing. Take delight in your family. Take delight in the moments when you can be resting and human because Sabbath is part of all of what we're doing. We're not just productivity robots. And maybe I'm not just preaching to myself when I say those things. But that's all to say, it's been a good start to what I hope will be a very productive semester. I'm just so glad to see both of you. And I also just want to say to listeners near and far, you write to us every time that we take a break and you say, what happened to the show? What's going We try and make it very clear when we take breaks and when we're coming back. But I'm sorry if that information missed you because we always want you to know that we're here, we're coming back, but like everything else, sometimes we just need to shut down production for a while and take a bit of a rest. But I just want to say again, I'm just delighted to be back here with the two of you. It's really good to see you both, even if it's virtually. Likewise. Yes. And of course, the news does not stop while we take breaks. So there's plenty for us to catch up on. And I'm looking forward to hearing from both of you about our topics today. Well, on that subject, today we're going to be talking about the Iowa caucuses, which as we are recording this just happened yesterday. And then in our second segment, we're going to be talking about the Vatican document that was released over the last couple of months, Fiducia Supplicans. And then in our third segment, Heidi's going to be talking to our dear friend of the show, political scientist and theologian Stephen P. Millies of Catholic Theological Union and the Bernadine Center. So all of that is coming up on the show. You're listening to The Francis Effect. Please stay with us. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan, and I'm here with Heidi Schlumpf and David Dahl. Every couple of weeks, we get together to talk about the news and politics through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. Well, we are recording this the day after the Iowa caucuses, and with that, the 2024 presidential election has officially begun. Everybody, deep exhale and deep breath. Like many events involving former President Donald Trump, this is a tale of two narratives. The first is just a straight reading of the numbers. Trump won by a landslide, garnering 51% of the vote. The two main challengers, former South Carolina Governor and UN Ambassador Nikki Haley and current Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, both getting roughly 20% of the remaining votes. The second narrative is that this was a caucus that was decided by 110,000 voters in a state with a population of more than 3 million people. So the appearance of a landslide is countered by the reality that on a bitterly cold day in January, most Iowa Republicans simply stayed home. David, I know it's still very early in the election process, but here we are. So a lot of what we'll be talking about is still mostly conjecture and early takes, but can we learn anything from what went on yesterday in Iowa to help us think about what's coming up in November? Well, where I want to start with my remarks today is, and you all know this about me, I, I pay real close attention to social media. And so I was watching the caucus yesterday, not just from the official channels, but from many of the unofficial ones. And I just want to lift up one particular tweet from a person in Iowa who says, DeSantis and Nikki Haley, please stop your insult to we the people. You have socialists voting for you to stop our choice. You are forcing yourself on we the people who don't want you. It's evident you are not for America. Hashtag Iowa caucus. Jeez. I think there are a lot of layers to this tweet, and I just want to spend a moment lingering with them because 
I think that first and foremost, we have lost the idea of the political in our country, not just from Democrat to Republican, but even within the Republican Party. The idea that well-meaning people can have differences of opinion about how to reach common goals seems to be completely absent. And so a lot of the narratives that I saw yesterday were different versions of this kind of tweet asserting that there is only one path and that anyone who diverges from that path or who would dare even to stand up as an alternative to the one path, and this one path being Donald Trump, is somehow not simply voicing a difference of opinion, but is voicing something un-American or possibly even demonic. And so this is a species of what we see also in the church when we hear about devout Catholics versus false Catholics or something. Like the notion that there is one path and there is no possibility even of conversation around what the common good might look like or what a path to a common goal might look like. And so for me, as we're heading towards November, that's the beacon that has my attention the most, is that we are not simply seeing a kind of erosion of the idea of the political, the idea that we can actually talk our way to negotiated futures, but rather we're seeing a complete abandonment of the political and an assertion that either I win or I'm going to war. Yeah, it's the old false choice, I win or you lose, right? It's this sort of zero-sum game pulled to the extreme. One thing that I've been thinking about adding to your contextualization, David, and rightful caution, I believe, is to remember that caucuses have long been considered the least democratic way of arriving at allocating the delegates to a party's eventual nominee. I've never lived in a state that caucuses, so I don't know what it's like firsthand. There's a part of me that actually finds it somewhat politically romantic, where human beings have to talk to one another, they're engaged in conversation. It's almost like you might imagine the debates in Philadelphia of the founding fathers. We want this, we want that Federalist Papers kind of thing in real time. Now, that's admittedly romantic. I think what we see is probably more true to what you were describing, David, that also just looking at the numbers, it's a very small group of people who make these decisions and they're partisan, right? So only Republicans are caucusing because they have contenders for the nomination. The sitting president on the Democratic side is presumed to be the nominee. And so, so there's that. There's also a high bar of entry, right? It's many hours of commitment on a weekday, a weeknight, in the cold and the like. But I think zooming out a little bit, I, I knew that the polls were pointing toward former President Donald Trump being the incredibly likely winner. Like that wasn't the question. The question was going to be what were the second and third place numbers and by how much would Trump win? And I think this morning as I was reviewing some of the reports and looking at the numbers myself, I was just really struck with your point about the lack of politics or the end of politics. It's like the end of history. I think there's something to that. I, I didn't have that language exactly, but I was really struck by the fact that here is a person, even if you liked his political position, who is under indictment for 91 criminal counts. He was impeached twice, very solipsistic and self-referential around grievance and vengeance, has made very public comments about the kind of dictatorial style that he intends to impose. And this yet appeals to people who very often identify as proud Americans. Well, that language, let alone January 6th and whether he's criminally negligible for that action or not, he certainly was involved in it, just seems to go against the very grain of who we say we are and our founding documents. So I'm just really disheartened. 
not surprised, right? We all saw this coming, but I still find myself scratching my head to think like what sort of internal logic is operating to get somebody to, yeah, to, to that point. Yeah, Heidi, what are you thinking about this? Well, I was struck by your use of the word demonic, David, because when you describe the current situation with the lack of politics and the inability to discuss, it does sound like such a strong ideology, almost like a religious fervor. And I, of course, am very interested in the interplay of religion and politics. And so was looking this morning to see what was being said about how religious folks voted. So I have not been able to find any data about Catholics per se in Iowa, but there has been a lot of discussion about white evangelicals. And I think that for white Catholics, there's a very similar trends going on. And many of you may already follow this. Ryan, am I Burge or Burgey? Do we know how to pronounce his name? I don't. Ryan Burge. I think he's a, a sociologist, statistician, writes a lot about politics and religion. And I think he was one who noted early on that this trend in Iowa and elsewhere for conservative evangelical Republican voters not to be that religious, that they don't really attend church and that their religion is their politics, which we could say about the left sometimes too. So I think this confluence of someone's religious beliefs or religious ideas and their politics is what is scary to me. And this idea of Christian nationalism being part of the whole Trump success and January 6th, etc. In a piece that Religion News Service wrote before the Iowa caucuses, Burge was quoted as saying, you know, for many of these white evangelicals, they're motivated less by faith than by fear about their declining influence in America, driven by demographics and cultural change. And I just think more and more, that's what we're that's what we're seeing is first it was ostensibly about abortion and not having influence on that issue. But now that that issue has been settled, at least at the national level, it doesn't it hasn't changed anything. So it's more about a diverse, pluralistic, changing America that is threatening to white religious folks in this country, white Christians, including Catholics, which is interesting to watch and a little bit scary to me. Yeah, and I would add to that straight cisgender people, right? I think there's been a lot of coverage, both by sociologists and journalists, that since the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade, there's been a vacuum created by kind of culture and social war issues. And that's been filled with this kind of transphobic and in part because in 2015, the Supreme Court upheld the the civil right to same-sex marriage, right? So that kind of came and went. Abortion has been decided in this way in favor of evangelicals and Catholics and others who hold these kind of political views. And then, so now what do you rally around? And we see that playing out. I mentioned this in part to add to what you're saying, Heidi, because I think all that is correct. And I'm reminded, I meant to, I should have said this in our opening banter, but one big thing that happened for me over the break is I finally quit Twitter. So David is, is on Twitter and you're, God bless you for that. Along the same lines, I just found myself no longer being able to tolerate, you know, what is was become <laughs> demonic. We'll use your term, David. Really, the algorithms have pl played into this sort of hatred and antagonism. And 
it just occurred to me that it's just not a mentally safe place, a spiritually safe place. And it, and even compared to other social media platforms, I can't believe I'm coming to the aid of Meta and Zuckerberg and company, but quite frankly, we on Facebook and Instagram is much more heavily moderated still. And though not perfect, feels markedly different from what X, as it were, has become. So that was my decision. It was a decision I had been considering for some time going back to a Lent where I took a fast from it and then really was changed by that experience. And then since Elon Musk bought it, it's just, it, I got to this point. I mentioned that because I think it's only going to get worse. <laughs> and the tweet that, or the post or the X or whatever it's called, David, you referenced at the beginning of this segment, I think that kind of language is just going to be ramped up more and more. And it reminds me, Heidi, of your point about the kind of ideology or religious fervor and that kind of politics has become the religion, the de facto religion of so many people, particularly on the right. I'm reminded of the great work of the philosopher, the Protestant philosopher, Jamie Smith, who's written several volumes on secular liturgies. And, and I think this plays right into that, right? The rallies of Trump, all the kind of imagery, it's really quite disturbing. And for those who still identify as Christian, the role of idolatry, I don't think, is taken seriously enough. Well, so the image that I want listeners to have here about what we're talking about, whether we're talking about the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, or Catholics writ large, it's a contrast. There is the image of an ark. You're either on the ark or you're in the flood of sin. You're in the flood of damnation, what have you. You're either on the boat or you're not on the boat. And that was the model for the church for many centuries. But since Vatican II, it's been a different model. And probably this was beginning before Vatican II, but it really became crystalline in the wake of Vatican II. We're not on an arc, we're in a conversation. And we are in a conversation with people of extraordinary variety. And we have to share our common home with people of extraordinary variety. That means that the mechanisms here can't be the colonial mechanisms that the church kind of allied itself with were so many centuries of domination and violence. Instead, we have to think about ourselves neighbor to neighbor. And those neighbors may not look like us, they may not sound like us, they may not have visions of the common good that we share. And in the wake of religious wars and secular wars, part of the question is, are we again going to pick up the axe? Are we again going to pick up the hammer and start beating each other? Or are we going to sit down in the tent of meeting at a table together over a meal or simply over a common desire for everyone to flourish and start working this out together? And in my hope and everything that I do in my work is to try and get that latter option, to get better conversations, to get better disagreements, to get less violence into the pipeline. And right now, there are so many people who are, I think, exhausted and exasperated who think that the only alternative is violence. And there are many Catholics who think that the only alternative right now is violence. And so to the extent that we can be giving an appeal to those that are listening, turn to each other and try and bring irenic interactions and not violent ones. And I don't know what that looks like. You're going to figure that out in your own space. But this is what I keep hoping for as we move into this season. And I keep being disappointed by the facts on the ground. <laughs> so I don't know what to say other than that. Well, I'll be very interested to see what our guest says, because he looks at politics and intersection of politics and religion much more closely than even all three of us do. But I do think 
I share your concerns, David, and I'm want to be hopeful. But when I see the results from Iowa, which admittedly, as you say, Dan, is not a good predictor necessarily of who the nominee will be. But when I see that the the one Republican candidate who had some appeal to moderation or to at least discussion, Nikki Haley, coming in third and not even second and so far behind, it gives me pause. And we'll know more as we go forward. And New Hampshire is coming up in just a week. So I know we'll be talking about this again in the future. But it's something to be concerned about. I also wonder, too, there's a sort of analogy, uh, not only with religion, but with sports fandom. And politics has become less, in my opinion. I mean, I I agree with everything both of you have said so far. But I just keep thinking, too, about I, I don't think a lot of voters are thinking about the role of politics being that of governance, right? But it's about my team or my person winning. And we see this kind of like a WWE sort of thing. Trump famously was involved in some WWE stuff in the past. And this sort of tearing down and zero-sum game we've been talking about. And there's an energy around this because it's seen as a competition rather than seen as discerning who is the best to govern for this time and these needs we have as a community. David, like you were talking about a diverse community, that we are 300 plus million people all quite different trying to live together. I'm reminded of the, oh, I can't remember which one exactly, the Michael Moore, one of Michael Moore's documentaries from the early 2000s that, that featured, it was focused in part on George W. Bush's reelection campaign. And I remember him meeting with somebody in the Midwest in a state not unlike Iowa at a diner. And a guy was talking about like having to make a choice between what we would normally say is the lesser of two evils. And I think it was Moore who flipped it around and said, are you sure you're not voting for the evil of two lessers? And that's always cracked me up. But here we are 20 years later. And I don't think that calculus is even operating in the minds of some people. It's not about who is the least worst candidate, as negative as that is to frame, but who's the person I'm backing, who's my team, and we're in this ride or die together. And that's fine if you are a Buffalo Bills or a Philadelphia Eagles fan. It doesn't work when there are real consequences. I just think that's a very interesting comparison. And as a Packer fan, (laughs) don't forget my team. That's my first reaction is my team. There you go. I think think you're right there. And it becomes about winning and not governing. And we don't see fellow Americans as on the same team, but as enemies. And that's why I think like talk of civil war, which has been the thing that people have been afraid to say, but have been worried about for years now is, to me, something to be concerned about. For me, I just want to bring it back to the language of Laudato Si, and this is in paragraph 229 of that document. We must regain the conviction that we need one another, that we have a shared responsibility for others and the world, and that being good and decent are worth it. If I had no other message for people entering the election cycle, I would bring this message again and again that being good and decent is worth it and that we need one another. We cannot throw the people that we think are not worthy off the side of the boat because, as the Holy Father has reminded us again and again, once we start doing that, we have lost our own lifeline. And so, listeners, I would just hope that you would take heart in this moment, even with all of the facts on the ground being what they are, that Jesus Christ is the liberator. And Jesus Christ is 
the convener, and Jesus Christ is the one who calls us to holy negotiation with each other. Let us seek the good together in our extraordinary variety. We're going to leave this conversation for now and go on to our next topic, which, again, needs holy negotiation in extraordinary variety. But for right now, you're listening to The Francis Effect. Thank you so much for being with us. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here with Heidi Schlumpf and Father Dan Haran. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. On December 18th, the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith, or the DDF, published a formal declaration titled Fiducia Supplicans, also known as On the Pastoral Meaning of Blessings which offered both a clarification of the understanding of blessings and the conditions for which it would be appropriate to offer a blessing to those people in, quote, irregular relationships. The declaration, which was also signed by Pope Francis, has been met with a range of responses and has been seen as controversial in some parts of the world. Fiducia Supplicans, which explicitly grants permission for informal blessings of same-sex couples and divorced and remarried straight couples, among others, has generally been received with enthusiasm in Western Europe and North America. Meanwhile, bishops in some Eastern European and African countries have decried the text as amounting to a rejection of long-standing Catholic teaching on the theology of marriage. On January 4th, the DDF published a clarifying statement in response to the criticism. Vatican News summarized its contents as follows, quote, the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith clarifies that fiducia supplicans does not change the doctrine on marriage, that bishops are able to discern the application of the document according to context, and that pastoral blessings are not comparable to liturgical and ritualized blessings, unquote. Dan, this declaration was released after we recorded and published the final episode of last season. In the weeks since, you've been following the discussion surrounding the text and its reception. Where should we begin? Well, I think the place to begin is really what I would call the common sense starting point, which is we've talked on this podcast before about the absurdity of refusing any person's a request for blessing. And that stems from the fact that we bless inanimate objects, we bless tools, we bless spaces, we bless seasons. On the Easter Vigil, we bless fire and candles. We bless water. So there should never be a circumstance in which a person who requests a blessing, requests prayer, requests that kind of spiritual support would be refused. So in some ways, I see this as really in continuity with a lot of what Pope Francis has been saying through his own ministry as Bishop of Rome. He's been very critical over the last decade of presiders of the Sacrament of Reconciliation of priests in the confessional putting themselves in the place of God, being judges as opposed to those who accompany penitents through, through their experience of reconciliation. As our theology says, God is the one who blesses. God is the one who absolves. It is God who acts and works through the community, including its ministers. So when, whenever it's like denying people communion, right? Whenever the Eucharist or a blessing is used as a weapon, it becomes sacrilegious in my sense, right? In my view, it becomes 
we replace the God of love and mercy and inclusion with an idol who is who has empowered us to be little kind of sovereigns deciding this, that, and the other. There has been, as you said, a lot of pushback. And the pushback has really come, I think, primarily from an assumption that this would be seen as a tacit support of same-sex marriage or of divorced and remarried couples and the like. So to me, it just is such, it does not follow. It does not logically follow. And I think that's where the DDF and its January 4th press release that you referenced, David, is right to the point where it's saying like nothing has actually changed. We've not changed the definition of marriage. We've not changed anything other than when somebody asks for a blessing, you can give it to them. It basically provides positive affirmation as opposed to coming up with more and more restrictions to who can quote unquote access God right through the ministry of the church. What are your thoughts about this? I've been struck by the reaction. So obviously this news right before Christmas, some LGBT groups in the United States called it like an early Christmas gift from the Pope. And I think the singling out or specific mention of same-sex couples, although it also referred to other people in other quote-unquote irregular um, situations, was seen as pretty big news. Especially, I think we have to think of this in context of the synod meeting in October ending without any movement on issues for LGBTQ Catholics. And so then shortly after that ends and there's that disappointment, then you have something coming out of a Vatican office that seems to be, even if it's not really a major change, just some sort of small step forward. But the, re the negative reaction, and not just from right-wing homophobic people in the West, from church leaders and bishops' conferences in certain parts of the world. It's, I think it's to be expected, but it certainly has been interesting to watch that very strong reaction. I think a lot of it very focused on Cardinal Fernandez, the head of the DDF, attacks on him personally, his previous writings, talks of schism. I don't know. It's, it's, I think it's to be expected, but it's been pretty strong, in my opinion. What about you, David? I have several thoughts. So you mentioned coming out of the synod that ended in October, and I've mentioned before the response of Paul Ely to the synod, which is basically that there was great disappointment because it neither reflected the actual extraordinary variety of conversations, nor did it give us any definitive decisions. It simply muted both. And so I think Paul Ely's criticism in Commonweal and in The New Yorker, those are all well taken. Recently, I heard a, another interview with Father Tom Reese, who is with Religion News Service, and he said, but look at what actually happened. The synod meeting ended without anything definitive, and then just a couple of weeks later, the Holy Father gave us something definitive. And so Tom Reese has a very optimistic view on this, reminding us that the synod process is not over and that there's another meeting happening in October and that this will be brought into that meeting in October. I'm taking Paul Ely's position and I'm taking Father Reese's position and I'm mixing them in the stew pot of my own thinking. And I want to add this particular piece of seasoning. I have a very radical view of how documents work in the Catholic Church. I think that the written well, and I'm getting this from a paragraph from the Catechism that says that Christianity is not a religion of the book, but rather it's a religion of the living Word of God. 
So I don't think that written documents are the ends of conversations. They don't stop discussion. They are the starting point for discussion. So for me, fiducia supplicans and the DDF document, neither of them, because of the way that I think about the locality of Catholicism being that everything is interpreted through your sort of local ordinary, we're not getting the ends of conversations here. These are not periods, but rather these are opportunities for us to begin vigorous discussion in our localities with everyone, todos, 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 who is either within the kind of accepted confines of the church or those who have been pushed to the margins of the church, everyone is now involved in a conversation about what these documents mean. And I, for one, am ecstatic at the possibility of people taking a document like Fiducia Supplicans and running with it as far as they can, as fast as they can, to say, this absolutely means that we can bless same-sex couples. This absolutely means that we can bless same-sex couples in all sorts of situations and contexts because they are beloved children of God and because the love that they reflect is the love of God. So I'm, I've got a bit of a radical position here, but I'm reaching the end of my patience with the sort of notion that somehow a document like the DDF clarification somehow takes the torch out of our hands. I think instead it is yet another thing that can begin a vigorous discussion. Well, I think that's really well put. I, I Just to qualify, too, I think your radical position is radical in the etymological sense, right? It goes back to the root, the, the radix, which is Jesus. And God incarnate came to show, as the Cappadocian fathers said, and Augustine repeated, what is not assumed is not saved. And so every person, regardless of their sexual orientation, gender identity or expression, what, what have you, race, geographic location and the like, is beloved of God, as you said. And that's exactly right. You know, one thing that's really struck me is, and I, I need to think about this a little bit more, but I'll think out loud with you and with our listeners for a moment, which is that there's an unequal weight to the arguments that are being used. So the people who are upset about this document, which substantively changes nothing, but pastorally provides an impetus for something that's already the case. Any human person who asks for a blessing should not be refused. That's just, that's the presupposition here. The arguments of those who are angry about this or resisting this are angry about perceptions, not about theological substance or about reality. They're concerned about how other people will perceive this, and it becomes a, a series of several degrees of distance from the actual issue itself, right? The assumption isn't that God loves all people and that God's blessing is extended to all and that the ministers of the church should be ministers of God's love and mercy, right? That's the rodix. That's the root. You move a couple degrees away and these people say, well, what about some third person looking at this saying, if I see two men or two women after Sunday mass on the way out in the vestibule, ask the pastor for a blessing and they're holding hands and the priest blesses them, that's going to be perceived as the church's universal support for the changing of the sacrament of marriage. It's just, it doesn't logically follow. And I think I have a real problem with that, that they're being treated in some ways as two equal views. And that's not true. It's not true in substance. It's not true in reality. And so I don't have a lot of patience for this, including some of the bishops' conferences you mentioned, Heidi, in the Global South. There are other issues. I'm thinking of certain dioceses and, and cultural contexts in Africa where polygamy is very commonplace, where a lot of diocesan priests who should be celibate clergy in the Catholic Church have not sometimes just one, but multiple wives. This is something that several bishops and archbishops and cardinals have raised as a concern. It's an ongoing conversation. I was 
in Southern Africa for a summer a couple years ago. I hear and witness this firsthand. And I realize that's also a concern of theirs in addition to the deeply culturally ingrained homophobia that exists, especially in places like Western Africa. But I think that we should just name these things and address this, right? And realize that what's being blessed are persons, not institutions, and that nothing really changes here. So I, I don't know if that advances the conversation in any way, but I just think the inequality of the argument and the reasoning has not been lifted up enough. Yeah, and I think what struck me when I was reading about the response of these African bishops' conferences is that even though polygamy is an issue kind of specific or more prevalent in their continent, that's not mentioned. And neither, and in a lot of the pushback from all over the world, it's very much hones in on the same-sex couples thing, even though the other irregular situations is mentioned just as much in the document. And that includes divorced and remarried without annulment folks. And so you would think that people would be just as upset about those irregular situations being blessed. But the fact that so much of the pushback has been about same-sex couples pretty much then reveals what I think the concern is. And I just think you're right, Dan, that there is a concern, there is expressed by many people who are upset about this, what will people think of the church or will people get the wrong impression? But underlying that is like the impression that they want people to have about the Catholic Church is that opposition to homosexuality is the crux of who we are. It's the most important thing that Jesus came to earth to talk about, was the, which, of course, Jesus never mentioned. So I guess that's my concern, too, is that, and it, to me, the reaction so focused on homosexuality then reveals what this is really about. I'm, I'm so grateful for the turn that the conversation has taken, both your comments, Heidi, and your comments, Dan. And when you say that this is not a substantive change, Dan, but a pastoral change, like there, there are some pieces that I want to pick up from that, sort of weaving through what Heidi just said. Listeners know that I come back again and again to a set of remarks that Pope Francis made to the United Nations in 2015. And in that set of remarks, there, there's a particular passage about two-thirds of the way through it where he says, we must support the poor in becoming dignified agents of their own destiny. And in the near decade since then, this has been taken up in theological circles under the kind of banner that is oftentimes referred to as protagonism. I think that the church needs to stop trying to put itself into the definition game. It needs to stop trying to define for others what their reality is. And instead, it needs to put itself into a position of supporting others as they are trying to live in fullness and wholeness. And there, there are those that are going to push back and say the only possible wholeness is Catholicism. And that gets us right back to that arc mentality that we were talking about earlier. We live in a world of eight billion people. So one out of every eight are Catholic. That means that we are in a conversation whether we like it or not. And we're either going to take up the sword and intercontinental ballistic missiles and kill everybody else until there are only the acceptable Catholics left, or we're going to learn to live as neighbors. But that means that we actually have to sit down and say, I can't tell you your story. I have to listen to your story that you are telling me, and then we have to begin a conversation of how I can support you in becoming the dignified agent of your own destiny. Well, just on that note, it reminds me, I'm going to be traveling this week to give a presentation 
to a group. And one of the things I'm going to talk about is this notion of epistemic humility. Is how do you know? And on what grounds do you know? And how are you? Because oftentimes what happens here is this assumption that I know better than you about yourself, right? And that's the, that thread is through, as you say, David, throughout the whole here. I just want to highlight a couple other things. I think, Heidi, you're exactly right. That the focus on same-sex marriage, on the LGBTQ community, on homosexuality, like that is the, the thing that is the neuralgic issue for these folks. And it's not these other irregular situations. Which brings me to a column I wrote last week about this, and one of the things that I don't feel like was, has been talked about as much of late, which is the significance of this document is a very simple one in many ways, which is that an official body of the church's governance has recognized the reality of same-sex couples. That, that This is extraordinary. All the other documents that have come from the CDF in the past or have been pastorally issued for guidance and dioceses and stuff, nine times out of 10 or more they have been critical, they've been dismissive, they've been dehumanizing. And so just naming the reality of queer people in this world and that they are in relationships and these relationships exist, just the existence itself seems to infuriate people. And I give some examples of that. And I think that's really the other thing that's going on here, right? There's this sort of diluted sense of erasure, like we need to deny that these folks exist because that's not how God made them, quote unquote. Just is absurd on so many levels and it requires a kind of epistemic humility. I, just because the experience is different from my own doesn't mean that it's wrong or made up or novel. The last thing I'll say is bringing it back to Jesus, because if we don't do that, what's the point? Is that there's an irony here to your point uh, that, that you, you named so well, Heidi, which is the way that this is being discussed by the antagonists, by the critics, is if this is the most important, most central thing in our faith tradition. By the way, there's nothing about sexuality or sexual activity or even marriage that appears in the creed. So let's just be honest about what is at the absolute core of our faith, right? What does it mean to be Christian? But then I want to say Jesus associated with, he blessed at least tacitly by his very presence and oftentimes more by his invitation to discipleship in his reconciliation and his healing ministry, people who were considered unhuman at the margins, who were dismissed, who were untouchable, whether it's women as a group, whether it is lepers and other people who are stigmatized at the time, whether it's people possessed by demons, whether it was people of other religious traditions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, tax collectors and so forth, public sinners. And so the kind of weird self-righteousness that informs this homophobia and by extension transphobia, and it, it is not only illogical and inhumane, but it is anti-Christian, right? It certainly doesn't respond, <laughs> it doesn't provide an answer to the question, what would Jesus do? Because we know what he did. And interestingly enough, he received a lot of criticism too. So I would say the DDF's document is exactly right. I think Pope Francis, again, is human like all of us, is imperfect in so many ways but knows when asked the question, does this align with the gospel and with who Jesus is and was? The answer is yes. So deal with it, critics. Learn. Open your heart. Ongoing conversion, people. Ongoing conversion. I can't think of a better place to end this particular conversation, but listeners, be assured we will come back to it again because LGBTQIA people exist, and they exist in the church, and they are worth talking about in their extraordinary variety and celebrating, and we will do exactly that here on The Francis Effect. We're going to turn now in our next segment to Heidi's interview with Stephen Millies from Catholic Theological Union. So that's coming right up. You're listening to The Francis Effect. Please stay with us.
Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Heidi Schlumpf with today's guest, Stephen P. Millies, Professor of Public Theology at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago, where he is also Director of the Bernadine Center. The Bernadine Center's initiatives focus on interreligious dialogue, the consistent ethic of life, and reconciliation and peacemaking, all issues that were important to the late Chicago Cardinal. Dr. Millies is a political theorist whose work explores the Catholic Church's relationship to politics, often drawing on Pope Francis's perspectives. He writes regularly about current events in the church, country, and world for both Catholic and secular publications, including America, Commonweal, and my own National Catholic Reporter. He's the author of a biography of Cardinal Bernardine, as well as the 2018 book called Good Intentions, A History of Catholic Voters from Roe to Trump. His latest book to be published this spring is titled A Consistent Ethic of Life, Navigating Catholic Engagement with U.S. Politics. With the Iowa caucuses officially kicking off the presidential primary season this week, we at the Francis Effect thought it would be an excellent time to invite Dr. Millies to the podcast to discuss the current political climate in the United States and the role Catholics play in it. Welcome to the podcast, Steve. Thanks very much, Heidi. It's good to be with you. I'm delighted as a longtime listener, first-time caller, <laughs> to be here with you. And was mentioned on the earlier segments that we recorded, longtime friend of the podcast, so I know you've been contributing to many of our thoughts in your writings and other and your friendship and in other ways, but we're so glad to have you as a guest. So let's dig in. We are recording this on Tuesday, when obviously the Iowa caucuses were last night, and the news from Iowa, as expected, was that former President Donald Trump won handily. Did this surprise you? And what do you think about Trump's apparent lead in the, in the primary? What does it tell us about the Republican Party, about the voters who are supporting him, or about our country's political climate in general? Now, we are in fairly uncharted territory for all kinds of reasons. The primary one really is that, historically speaking, first-term presidents generally have the grace to take their loss and go home. It's been a very long time in American politics since a one-term president came back and tried again. George H.W. Bush went home. Jimmy Carter went home. They both went on to do different things. So part of what we're seeing has to be measured against, I, I, even on the radio this morning, they were struggling with whether or not to use the word incumbent to describe him, because there is a kind of an incumbency effect that accompanies him that we're not accustomed to in this age of the modern presidency. So he walks into a Republican presidential primary with certain incumbency advantages, and yet he lost half the votes. I think that's the great underreported story of this morning. In deep red Iowa, uh, half the voters in Iowa, in the Iowa caucus, half the voters in the Iowa caucus said they'd rather have somebody else. I, I think that's really important. And I want to point to a couple of other data, or at least one other data point, too. It's a troubling data point. Uh, Two-thirds, Larry Sabato, political scientist, was quoting this yesterday on Twitter. Two-thirds of Republican caucus voters in Iowa said they believed the election was stolen. And yet, believing 
the election was stolen. More than two-thirds of Iowa Republicans say they believe it was stolen. Still, barely half voted for Donald Trump. It's only one reason why I would want to say that while I think there are some incumbency advantages, especially now early in the race, there's a softness to Trump's candidacy that I think may well matter as 2024 unfolds. Well, I appreciate the context and the possible softness of the victory. The polls do show him leading nationally as well. And there is a possibility, depending, although we can throw in the 90 plus counts of, that he's facing in various courtrooms as well. But some people are already accepting, like, is this going to be a rematch between Biden and Trump? And if so, what do you think I mean, first of all, do you accept that premise? It's hard to predict. But if so, what kind of issues do you think we're going to be seeing in the national race? As you said, different states care about different things. But isn't it true that in the end, it's just going to come down to a couple key states? And what issues matter to those voters? So first of all, I learned a long time ago as a political scientist, never to get into the future casting business. It's the fastest way to look like I don't know anything. I'm happy to say Right now, given what we know about incumbency, the the Biden-Trump rematch certainly is the most likely outcome of all of this for all of the obvious reasons. I do think there's been a lot of polling that suggests that a criminal conviction could change the picture very quickly for former President Donald Trump. And the timing of that would matter a lot for, for what difference it might possibly make. But in terms of the actual matchup, I think a Trump and Biden matchup, we haven't, I wouldn't pay too much attention to the national polling on that just now because there really has not been a campaign yet. The Biden campaign has only really just begun spending money. They've waited for 2024 to begin, but they also know they don't have a primary race ahead of them. There's really not a lot of need to spend a lot of money even now, although they've begun to. You can't really say much about the campaign until the campaign is underway. At the same time, too, they've got a message that they haven't even brought out yet. This has been the most effective, the Biden-Harris administration has been, objectively speaking, the most effective use of presidential power in the era of the modern presidency since 2024. The data, the measures, the metrics on all of this, there was a report yesterday that a feature of the American Rescue Plan, uh, one of the COVID-era pieces of legislation passed very early in the Biden administration, is kicking in now in early 2024. Prescription drugs are not only not going up in many cases, they're going down because of incentives that have been built in to the Medicare and Medicaid reimbursement structures that disincentivize raising prices on common medications. Those are things people are going to start noticing in the next few months. Your real question, I think, was about issues. What issues are going to matter most to voters in the next several months? And, and here we come to the depressing part of it, because if we go back to the results of the Iowa caucus, 68% of Republican voters saying that Joe Biden stole the election from Donald Trump. I mean, I'd like to think, I'd like to believe if we lived in a country where two-thirds of people really thought the election was stolen, that things would be a little bit different from how generally quiet they are from day to day. I'd like to think we'd take that a little more seriously. Of course, two-thirds of them don't really believe that the election was stolen. 
but it's a way that they identify themselves. It's one of those things that we say to say who I am in U.S. politics. And here, I think, is the truly depressing part. Our politics isn't about issues. Our politics is about identity. Issues are avatars for our identities. And so the truly depressing thing is, no matter how much better objectively the economy is, no matter how many jobs have been created, no matter how much prescription drugs are going to cost less, no matter how many robes have been paved, no matter how many jobs have been created, no matter any of it, a substantial number of us have our identities committed to not noticing it. In the very same way that during COVID, a pandemic that I think I can make a pretty persuasive case owed in no small part to the mismanagement of a federal government that knew how to prevent something like that. Millions of people died. The president may well have been hours away from death in October of what was it, 2021 or 2019, rather. Or no, I'm sorry, 2020. The president may well have been hours away from death, and a substantial number of us are devoted to not noticing that this happened, that an administration should be held accountable for the loss of millions of lives in the U.S. and around the world. Issues in the end aren't what the 2024 election is going to be decided about. It's going to be decided by identity. I do think that that softness is revealed in comparing those poll numbers. 68% say the election was stolen and yet only half vote for it. There, there's something that happens in polling. People know they're being asked these questions. They're playing a game with pollers. They're playing a game with the media. I don't think the commitment to Trump is as full and complete, but the commitment to an identity that resists the Democrats, that resists Joe Biden, that resists urban, cosmopolitan, East Coast elites, and all of the rest of it, I think that matters. The one thing I would say in close, I'm sorry, it's a long answer, but the one thing I would say in close is I think we have learned a lot over the last year or so that's very instructive about the way abortion might play in this election too. And I think that also suggests a kind of a softness that I'm confident that the Biden-Harris administration is thinking about. Well, let's talk about abortion. And that was a long answer, but that was a great answer. And I think you hit the nail on the head about the importance of identity over issues. But of course, people talk about issues as if they care about them, maybe if they are indeed just avatars for identity. But when we think about abortion, I'm thinking of a couple things. So when the bishops met in November, they approved basically the same guide that they've had for voters for many years now. But specifically, they made sure that language of preeminent priority was still there in terms of referring to abortion. And then, of course, now we have Roe versus Wade overturned, the Dobbs decision returning abortion law to the states where we've had various things proposed over the last year and a half. So what role do you think that issue will play, whether it's as an issue or as a avatar for identity, I guess? Because this also then brings in the question of religious identity. And for many religious folks, abortion is something they talk about, for sure. What are you thinking? Because you've literally written the book about this. <laughs> Yeah, this is one of these things that I think is most fascinating about the year that lies ahead. And honestly, I think it's far more treacherous for Donald Trump now than it is for Joe Biden. And we've already seen that. 
because we've already seen Trump come out for as much as he took credit. What was it in the Fox Town Hall last week or the week before? Well, Town Hall, the infomercial. For as much as he took credit for overturning Roe, he, he's also been, you know, rather critical of, for example, the Florida law. He called it a huge mistake. He seems to want credit for overturning Roe, but he doesn't want any credit for the consequences. And the reason, of course, he doesn't want any credit for the consequences is because Republicans have lost because of abortion in Ohio and Kentucky, in Virginia, in Arizona, in Nevada, in Florida, in South Dakota, in Nebraska, in Colorado. That's a pretty long list. And a number of those, as you were saying before, are states that might well matter when we get down to November. You're quite right that the U.S. bishops have reapproved their Groundhog Day document. We keep getting this essentially the same faithful citizenship document that was approved in 2007 when Benedict was pope and George W. Bush was president of the United States. And yet the world has turned upside down now that Roe has been overturned. To such a degree, too, that the chair of the USCCB pro-life committee indicated that they would accept a 15-week ban as an acceptable solution, which would allow 94% of the abortions under row. It's as quick a way as I can imagine to say all that stuff that we did to turn American politics inside out across the last 50 years. Well, never mind. So I think it's fascinating in the sense that for the first time since the presidential election of 1972, We have presidential candidates who might be saying astonishingly similar things about abortion, who who might be very keen to make sure everybody knows they don't like some of these state laws that have been passed placing restrictions on abortion. And that's a much different landscape. I I think also, too, and it's one of these things I'm confident the Biden-Harris campaign is thinking about. Yes, issues are avatars for identities. And yet, People are also really living their lives. Women who are Catholics, women who are evangelicals, women who voted for Trump are still women and and still confront what is not a simple matter in these questions of reproductive health. It's not the simple binary abortion good or abortion bad. There's a lot more to it. And women are much more aware of that than men are and women vote. And men are becoming more aware of it, too. I always also like to point out that there is a religious freedom angle on this issue that's worth talking about, that not every religious tradition has the Catholic or the Western Christian position on abortion. That's a different argument. But to say that whether we're talking about abortion or whether we're talking about pocketbook issues, even though I may want to tell a polar that I'm for Trump or that I'm against the coastal elites or whatever else, There are some signals that people do, in fact, vote issues when it's personal enough. That long list of states is proof of that. And so I think the question for the Biden-Harris campaign is going to be crafting a message across the next several months that's going to activate that impulse. The challenge for the Trump and whomever campaign is going to be to avoid falling into traps about that. And those traps are going to be numerous. Well, if abortion is not what people are voting for anymore, then are we back to their voting about the, I'm talking about very pro-life people, um, what are they, what issues will they be voting about? Immigration, foreign policy, are these not going to be issues? I, I think this is going to be, as I say, one of the more fascinating things, because and you've done some tremendous reporting about this for NCR, about the way in which 
there is, for want of a better way to put it, in fact, I don't think there is a better way to put it. There's an industry devoted to this. There's a lot of money at stake. And so I, I don't think that a lot of those players are going to need to be triggered at all in order to try to ignite the abortion issue. That's, I think, one of those traps that Trump is going to have to be trying to avoid. There's going to be a strong gravitational lure because all of that money and all of those actors, based on 50 years of doing the same thing, don't know what else to do. They're going to go to what works because, I suspect, because this is the first time around since Dobbs. So there's going to be a strong pull from that side. And I doubt the Democrats are going to be doing much to discourage it. In fact, I might encourage the Biden-Harris campaign to, to bait them with some very progressive, very pro-choice stuff because it's, I think it's very bad for Trump and it's very bad for the Republicans. And yet, in terms of other issues, no, I don't really see foreign policy really taking center stage with the possible exception of the Israeli-Hamas conflict. We await the development of what's happening in the Red Sea, too. I think that's certainly worth paying attention to. Ukraine is not off the stovetop, and yet it, it does seem to be for some reason. But I don't think we're in a foreign policy election. I think that our sense of where the social issues are has been put into a blender. I think what comes forward certainly are going to be economic issues because of a distorted sense of where the economy is. There's a lot of data on that, that your sense of this very strong economy depends on what your identity is. Mm -hmm. And of course, immigration is going to matter too. Yeah, which can be tied to economic issues as well sometimes. Well, I want to ask you, and then we could get into like Catholics and how they vote, but of course there is no singular Catholic vote anymore. There's people who have the Catholic identity that puts them more in line with the culture war issues of the Republican Party, and they have people, Catholic voters who have an identity that puts them more in line with Democrats. But I know your new book that's coming out suggests that maybe the consistent ethic of life could be a way for Catholics in the U.S. to engage with issues because it would take both the gospel seriously and politics seriously. Talk a little bit about how that might work, especially in light of the reality that you've described about how identity is working. Yeah, well, I think I would want to say first, you're quite right. I remember being at, I think I mentioned this in the book, I remember being at a seminar at Catholic U in 1996 where Mark Shields, the late Catholic commentator, there was a seminar on the Catholic vote, and he opened up by saying, I have no idea why I'm here. There's no such thing as the Catholic vote. Mm -hmm. E.J. Dion, I was part of a panel with him in 2020, and uh, it was a quip from him that became the title of the panel. There is no Catholic vote, and it's important. We've talked to political scientists, talked about the Catholic vote for a long time because there, it both is important, and yet it's very hard to quantify. I think I would want to very briefly, if I can say, I think the reason for that is, and I learned this writing Good Intentions. Or rather, I learned, I guess, that I thought this, that there is no Catholic vote except that the story of Catholicism in the United States is the story of immigration. Mm -hmm. Catholic vote is an immigrant vote, and it's a vote about Americanization. It's a vote about generational progress. It's a vote about moving upward on the ladder of American society. And so I always want to say in the first place, when we talk about a Catholic vote, we have to add something like that historical and sociological lens to it to really understand why Catholic voters behave in the strange kind of way that we do. But the other thing we would want to notice is that, and it's the reason why there is no Catholic vote, 
because Catholic voters basically do and historically vote pretty much like voters everywhere else. There was some truly disturbing data Greg Smith from the Pew Research Center had in 2019. They had a list of seven issues, the environment, capital punishment, abortion, poverty, and others. And they broke it out by Republicans and Democrats, Catholic Republicans and Catholic Democrats. And, and what, we, what the data showed was that if you're a Catholic who identifies as a Republican, you look just like a Republican. If you're a Catholic who identifies as a Democrat, you look just like a Democrat. It's those identities that really govern who we are and how we vote. And to some degree, that's the reason I wrote the book. I'll say candidly, too, I wrote the book because I thought the bishops would reissue the same document again, and it might create a need. And I'm also aware it's time for the consistent ethic maybe to make a comeback, particularly now that we're on the other side of Roe versus Wade. It's time to reinvest ourselves as Catholic voters in how to think about our citizenship without being so singularly focused on abortion. That's to say, not to say not to focus on abortion, but to focus on it so singularly, I think, has kept us from talking about a consistent ethic of life for a long time. But finally, in terms of what usefulness I, I hope it might have, what I really want to do with the book, and certainly what I hope to spend most of 2024 doing, is to reframe the conversation, not just about Catholics and politics and the Catholic vote, but to reframe even the conversation about the consistent ethic of life. Because we're accustomed to thinking of the consistent ethic in a way Cardinal Bernadine never intended us to think about it. We're accustomed to thinking about the consistent ethic in terms of issues. How should I vote on this? How should I vote on that? Uh, and it lends itself to these voters' guides and these checklists of how I'm supposed to think if I'm a Catholic. Bernadine never talked about it that way. He talked about an attitude of respect for life that should permeate how we approach political questions. And we know also from our political tradition that politics is a realm of prudence. We're supposed to apply our own prudential judgment, our own awareness of the issues. We're supposed to inform our consciences. But the truth is, we are able to see, we are permitted to disagree about different paths to achieve the same moral result. That's what prudential judgment means. And all of that has gotten overlooked in our zeal to find the right answers to particular issues. So what I've wanted to do is to try to reframe the whole question, to try to refocus the consistent ethic on an attitude of respect for life. But I also would want to say too last that I closed the book, and this was a real motivation for writing it in these days that we live in. This is another way that I want to reframe the consistent ethic. If we must have a preeminent issue, if we must have a preeminent priority, but I want to say it's not any issue as such. The preeminent priority is politics. Mm. The preeminent priority is our political community itself. The preeminent priority is a question. Can we govern ourselves? Do we want to live together in peace across our differences? The consistent ethic of life is an ethic of solidarity. Bernadine talked about that and Cardinal Supich has talked about that as well in a couple of remarks about the consistent ethic, that solidarity is the root of the consistent ethic. And then our solidarity with one another is where that respect for life arises from that then finds realization in all of those other issues, whether it's the nuclear arms race or whether it's capital punishment or whether it's abortion or whatever. This election in 2024, you'll hear plenty of people saying democracy's on the ballot, I don't like to put it that way. To me, it's politics itself. 
that's at stake. It's our sense of community. Catholic faith can point the way toward a better sense of community, but we Catholics have done more than our fair share of promoting division. My hope is that I'll be one of many Catholic voices in the year ahead, calling on Catholics to rethink that and to recommit ourselves to being agents of solidarity so that we can, in fact, rebuild a politics that promotes human life. And that means governing ourselves. That means being able to make choices by focusing on issues, not identities. Well, I didn't believe it was possible, but after talking to you the day after the Iowa primaries, I'm feeling hopeful and optimistic and good about the potential for Catholics to play a role in some sort of reclaiming of politics. Is there anything else that that you wanted to add from your perspective so far? Obviously, we've got a long way to go till November, and some of these issues will be with us even after this next presidential election. But any comments that you would want to add for our listeners? One very brief homily. I taught political science in the University of South Carolina system for 15 years, and one of the units in the Intro to American Government, wherever that gets taught, is the unit on participation. What matters most? is participation, a government that is responsive and citizens who participate. And voting, I think, and this is one of the reasons why I like to take the emphasis off democracy, voting in some ways is the least effective mode of participation because we only do it every two years at best. Real participation is daily. Real citizenship is constant. And we do it by keeping up with the news, even when it's news we don't want. But we do it especially in an election year by finding a campaign to support, not only supporting it with our money, but that's important, particularly because there are so many bad actors out there with a lot of money who are trying to swing our politics against the voters. But volunteering our time, committing ourselves to phone bank, to knock on doors, to caucus, if we really do want to continue to have a responsive government that permits us a full range of participation in our public life, then this 2024 election is the most important time for everybody within the sound of my voice. No matter what candidate you get behind, I don't care. Get out there and be an active, participating citizen. It could be your last chance. Well, amen. I hope all of our listeners pay attention to that, Amelie. Thank you again so much, Stephen Millies, for joining us at The Francis Effect and for giving us all this background and insight into our current political situation. We're so grateful. I am delighted to consider all three of you good friends, and I'm happy to give my greetings for a happy, healthy, and peaceful 2024 to you and all your listeners. Thank you. This is David. Just want to say that if you want to listen to the entirety of this interview with Heidi, you can do so at our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash FrancisFXPod. Thank you for listening. On behalf of Heidi and Father Daniel, we'll be back in a couple of weeks. We're very glad to have been with you today. Thank you so much. This has been The Francis Effect. The 
Francis Effect is produced by Sandberg Media LLC and is recorded remotely in Chicago, Illinois and South Bend, Indiana. It's edited by me at the William Adams Studios in Hyde Park on Chicago's beautiful South Side. The opinions of this program are our own and do not reflect the positions of any organizations with which we may be affiliated. We want to give a shout out to the Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They are not affiliated with our program, but they did give us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it very much. Please check out their good work at slmedia.org. This show is made possible in part by our Patreon supporters, and if you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Both of those are at francisfxpod, and our website is also francisfxpod.com. Please tell your friends about the show, and if you're here for the first time, we have seasons and seasons of episodes that you can go back to and listen to for your heart's content. We're so glad that you're here. Heidi and Father Daniel and I will be back in about two weeks. We're looking forward to being with you then. Thank you again for listening.